Hello, everyone. I'm Hank Gross, MidHudsonNews.com. And today we have a special report with Dr. Hal Teitelbaum, who is the CEO of Crystal Run Health, and he's discussing with me COVID-19. You know, we've got, um, you know, great team of people um, in the region. Uh, I think we had, uh, we've certainly been working with our uh, local hospitals. Um, we have uh, many providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants uh, working in our local hospitals, uh, some doing more of the care that they usually do, that is, uh, you know, nephrology, kidney specialists, uh, uh, lung specialists, critical care specialists, cardiologists, etc., doing that, infectious disease specialists, doing that much more work in the hospitals, even though they normally do this work, but now they're doing much more, obviously, with um, uh, a sick group of uh, patients uh, that are hospitalized. At the same time, we have um, uh, physicians and advanced practice providers who have volunteered to go to the hospitals who don't normally uh, provide services uh, in the hospitals, but who are helping out. We have over uh, 100 such volunteers that we're deploying in teams to a variety of local and regional hospitals. And then we have people who are working in our dedicated um, COVID-19 evaluation sites. So for probably a month or so now, at least, we've been, uh, we set up outdoor testing uh, drive-in facilities where we've done about 10,000 evaluations. And these are not just um, testing patients, but actually evaluating them, uh, evaluating their severity of illness, whether or not they might require hospitalization. So we have, we have people on the front lines doing that. And, you know, to, and frankly, um, you know, everyone from the housekeeping staff to physicians, everyone in between, nurses, medical assistants, front office, back office staff, uh, all working to keep the lights on and, most importantly, uh, to take care of the needs of the community and our patients because medical needs don't go away. Obviously, there are new medical needs in the era of uh COVID-19, but the old medical needs don't go away either. So we, we, we felt very um, strongly from the beginning of this um, that we had to make sure that the um, acute medical needs of our patients and, he, and even the chronic medical needs of our patients didn't go unaddressed, uh, whether it's high blood pressure or diabetes or chronic lung disease or coronary artery disease or chronic pain. We still have to deal with these things. We can't just, uh, you know, think that just because we have a new public health emergency, we, we can stop dealing with some of the old old issues. Now, Doc, um, in your latest newsletter that I got uh, by email, you talk about um, false negatives. Could you address that? Sure. Uh, I think, you know, one of the major problems that we have in understanding the novel coronavirus, how long this will last, um, you know, what the impact is ultimately going to be on society. You know, clearly it will be great, but, um, you know, what the duration will be is our lack of understanding of this disease and our um, 
inability to rapidly scale up testing. Um, so one of the issues is uh, certainly that we don't understand, and when I say we, I mean the, the, even the leading experts in the country don't really understand um, all the characteristics of the tests that we've been using. Um, and, uh, you know, first, uh, firstly, these PCR tests, the uh, polymerase chain reaction tests that we've been using uh, initially of um, nasopharyngeal swabs, sometimes nasal swabs, sometimes oropharyngeal swabs, et cetera. Now they're talking about saliva. Um, the characteristics of these tests are not well established. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, what is the true positive rate? Um, you know, what is the false positive rate? That is, and by false positive, we mean um, somebody who tests positive who doesn't have a disease. And false negative, we mean somebody who tests negative who actually does have the disease. These are characteristics of every test we do, whether it's the, you know, the rapid flu test or the rapid stress, uh, strep test. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what test you do. When you do HIV testing of the blood, there will be some false negatives and there will certainly be some false positives. And um, you, these characteristics of tests get to be better understood over time. Um, but it, it does appear to be very clear that there are a substantial number of false negatives. Um, you know, I've heard numbers, people talk about numbers like, you know, um, 30% are false negatives, meaning that if somebody is truly infected, that uh, the test will only detect that 70% of the time. Uh, honestly, I'm not uh, convinced that the false negative rate is only 30%. I think it could be significantly higher than that. Um, again, it depends in part on the sampling process but also on the characteristics of the specific test and who's doing it. But uh, we've had multiple examples of uh, having three or four members of a family um, all come to us with symptoms for evaluation, uh, and they have the same symptoms. They live in the same house, um, and uh, two, two of them, for example, may test positive and the others test negative. You know, we don't think that those other people um, – don't have COVID-19, we think they're just testing negative. You know, during the flu season, um, people getting the, the rapid flu test, which is another, you know, very good test, um, but we know that there are false negatives uh, for that test as well. And actually, the recommendation, the best practices during the, during the peak of the flu season is not to even bother testing people for the flu. If they come with a flu-like syndrome, um, you assume they have the flu and you don't need to do the test. Um, I really think that for many people who are presenting currently with COVID-like symptoms, uh, we need to treat them as if they have COVID-19, recommending quarantine, for example, um, uh, whether or not the test is positive. Uh, th that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing testing. I, I believe that we should be doing testing um, because certainly when you tell somebody they need to quarantine themselves for a period of time, uh, it's much more convincing if they actually test positive. 
But, um, you know, we tell people who have the right symptoms uh, that they should be, they should follow the same rules for isolation and quarantine as of whether they test negative or they test positive. Uh, because, again, we can't rely entirely uh, on the test results that we're getting. We're hearing now the various reports saying that uh, it could be uh, a year to 18 months to come up with a virus, uh, a vaccine. Uh, is that your feeling also? Uh, I hope it happens that soon. Um, you know, things can, uh, there, there, there is a possibility that we could uh, happen upon a vaccine sooner. Um, and when I, when I say happen upon it, obviously it's through hard work. But, um, you know, there's a lot of chance involved here. Um, there may never be a vaccine. Uh, I hate to be bleak about it, but every time I hear people saying 12 to 18 months, I remind them that we don't have a vaccine against HIV. Uh, that's been around a whole lot longer than 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, there are every uh, virus that I'm aware of uh, does um, cause some sort of immune response, uh, does uh, cause the production of antibodies, um, and that is that the heart of creating a vaccine is uh, injecting uh, some of the protein material um, from the virus to induce an antibody reaction, and you hope that that antibody reaction, these proteins that we form in our uh, in our blood, part of our immune response, you hope that those are so-called neutralizing antibodies, capable of preventing the further growth and replication of the virus. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, people with HIV test positive for HIV-related antibodies, but those antibodies are clearly not sufficient to clear the uh, virus from the bloodstream uh, permanently. And, uh, you know, there have been multiple attempts at vaccines for HIV over the years, which have failed. Um, again, I'm hoping that that's not the case with the coronavirus but, you know, we, we don't know that yet. Um, and I think, you know, part of the question is, will we find uh, the right vaccine? Um, and part of the issue is, you know, what is the immunogenicity of the virus itself? Is it able to, uh, it does it cause a robust immune response? And, um, you know, if it does, uh, are the antibodies that produced uh, that are produced, uh, you know, neutralizing? Do they actually result in uh, the elimination of the virus? So those are all the questions that we have to answer, and we we do not have those answers yet. It, it is frankly, you know, it, in my opinion, we were horribly unprepared for this um, pandemic. Um, you know, we have a lot of smart people in this country. We have a lot of smart people, frankly, in the world uh, who understand virology, you know, who understand how to make vaccines, who understand how to create PCR tests and serologic tests, the blood tests that everyone is talking about now. This is not rocket science. This is basic stuff of um, immunology. Now, I'm not saying that we can necessarily create cures overnight or vaccines overnight uh, that are successful, 
Um, again, some of that is chance and some of that is related to the basic qualities of the virus itself and the kind of immune response it induces. But, um, you know, we need to be prepared as a, as a country uh, to at least to be able to respond to any new virus um, rapidly because we, we don't know when the next one will be the big one. This is obviously big enough, um, and it, it's, it's really big. It's really, um, you know, causing a lot of pain, uh, a lot of suffering, and yet it could be even worse. Um, you know, it's not Ebola. Um, you know, the next virus could be Ebola, could have the lethality of Ebola with the, um, you know, with the spread of, you know, coronavirus. And, you know, what does this tell me? Uh, it tells me that, you know, we need a lot more attention. You know, instead of focusing on the space force, we should be thinking about the Earth force. You know, the, the group of medical and scientific professionals who deal with the challenges that we have right here, right now, and that can develop, you know, at any time. And clearly, you know, we, we weren't prepared for, for what we're currently dealing with. So I, I imagine that you're not too uh, excited about the president pulling the funding from the, uh, the World Health Organization? Uh, I'm not. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, whatever challenges there exist, uh, and there are many, um, the, the bigger the approach, the broader the approach, the more global the approach, the better off we are. Um, you know, frankly, so, so uh, I think that, um, you know, we need to enlist other people in, in the world. This is not the time, you know, as, as the governor has said, it's not the time for, for uh, political fights. It's all, you know, fighting with the World Health Organization is just another form of political fight. Uh, we, we need cooperation. We need people to feel that they can work together and should work together. And, and again, we need to think about things. We need 21st century solutions to uh, our current problems. You know, another area and, you know, uh, uh, that we need to think about is whether every one of our counties uh, in New York and in every other state needs to have its own health department. Um, I would say no. Uh, not in, certainly not in its current form. Maybe there should be regional health departments, you know, Hudson Valley, Western New York, um, you know, et cetera. Maybe we could think about regional health departments. But, you know, when we think about what we do um, uh, as a nation, we're dealing with 21st century problems. This is a 21st century problem uh, the current pandemic, you know, the we're still using, you know, we've, I'm sure you've heard a lot about contact tracing. Uh, yes, it's important, but we cannot use, you know, 20th century techniques in the 21st century. We're using the techniques that we, you know, the, the health department of many counties in New York State, other when we're not dealing with COVID-19, are doing contact tracing for gonorrhea, and chlamydia for sexually transmitted infection. That's a whole different order of magnitude 
than what is required today when we're when we really need to be able to do contract tracing for thousands for tens of thousands for hundreds of thousands of individuals at the same time that is a whole different level of sophistication it requires technology that we don't have in place so you know instead of thinking about you know how do we do things like we used to do it you know in the 1900s we need to think about you know how we need to be doing it in the 21st century and again this is part of where we need to be this is not going to happen these kinds of sophisticated approaches are not going to happen by trying to reinvent the wheel in every county or frankly even reinvent the wheel in every state maybe not reinvent the wheel in every country we need to work together with people across the globe and certainly for sure across the country to to solve these kinds of problems um if if we want to be successful you mentioned that you hope that the vaccine or a vaccine is is uh is uh found in a short time is 18 months but it seems to me that even that period of time uh could lead to uh perhaps a socioeconomic downfall of the country and or the world if the united states has to be shut down for even six months economically that could uh, destroy a large part of the economy. Uh, absolutely, it could. I mean, one of the first, you know, thoughts that crossed my mind when I started to hear about the discussions of shutting down the country, um, you know, pausing the economy, is that um, you know we we do you know just at least from an academic perspective, at a minimum, um, and from a real human perspective. You know, we've we've done the modeling of the outcome. If we don't shut down the country, shut down the state, etc., what is what does the modeling show if we do shut it down? Because again, when, and when I say that, I don't mean just related to COVID. Uh, I mean related to all of the other sequelae of of shutting things down. And you know, some of this comes from you know, simply inattention to our other health needs. You know, we have people who are obviously ill from, you know, many, many other medical problems, you know, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, et cetera. You know, we can't shut down the treatment of those things. And yet it is harder for people to get care today. uh, And people are afraid to get care because they're worried about COVID, appropriately uh, worried about COVID. Um, At the same time, you know, loss of jobs, uh, economic losses, loss of uh, insurance coverage, etc., does potentially impact our well-being, our health, our longevity. Um, you know, long after COVID is hopefully defeated, eliminated, um, I do suspect that there will be long-term health effects. Um, and effects on um, uh, longevity related to, you know, failure to treat, you know, diabetes and heart disease uh, or to diagnose cancer. I mean, you know, we're deferring colonoscopies. We're deferring mammography. Yes, you can defer these things for some period of time, uh, but you can't defer them forever. Um, Eventually, they do become urgent. You know, I believe that the things we do in healthcare, the things we do to try to keep people healthy, are important. 
And so, um, you know, deferring those things works for, you know, a few weeks or a few months, perhaps. It's a, it is a trade-off for sure. But at some point, uh, there is an impact uh, on if we fail to diagnose a breast cancer or a colon cancer timely, or if somebody says, you know what, it wasn't that important. I skipped it last year because of COVID-19. You know, I could skip it again. That's a problem. If somebody doesn't go for needed health care services because of the economics, even if somebody retains their health insurance, everyone is going to have less discretionary income after this. You know, most people are going to have their, you know, economic well-being affected, which could cause them to seek less medical attention, particularly if that medical, you know, uh, care uh, has a copay or a deductible associated with it. So you know, there are real impacts not a, a, on quality of life at every at every level, and uh, that includes effects on health care or the economic uh, downturn. Um, you know, that said, it, I don't think it's as simple as, gee, that sounds like we should turn the economy back on, because if people are sick and dying, the economy is not going to be turned back on no matter what the president or any governor says. You know, if, if people are realizing that this remains a highly contagious disease and that, that a significant number of people will suffer uh, or uh, die as a result, uh, they're not going to be going to restaurants. They're not, if they're smart, going to be going to um, sports arenas. They're not going to be going to the theater. Whatever, whatever the regulators say, because they're smarter than that. You know, the American people are going to say, well, gee, I, I don't want to do these things that put me and my family at risk. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a simple, yes, we should turn on the government, turn on the economy or no, we shouldn't. You know, it's much more complicated. As, as many people have said, as I think uh, Governor Cuomo has said, as the governor uh, has said in uh, New Jersey, you know, the first step in you know, getting the economy going is to is to deal with with COVID-19 itself and get it under control so that people feel safer and and understand it better. I do think that, um, you know, hopefully the serologic tests will give us uh, some real information sooner rather than later. And these, again, are the blood tests looking for antibodies. We really need to understand, you know, where, what, what is the, the uh, proportion of people who've really been exposed to uh, COVID-19 and who've developed antibodies, you know, hopefully, and again, we don't have an absolutely clear answer on this, but hopefully many, uh, if not most of those people will have some degree of immunity and therefore at least for some period of time not, not become ill if they're, you know, re-exposed. That would be really important to know. That's one of the most important things that we can know at this point, because that would tell us, among other things, you know, are these people that we can have on the front lines? Um, are these people who can be more involved with, uh, with the public, you know, if they, in fact, have antibody and if, in fact, we learn that these people have some degree of immunity? So, you know, again, it remains to be seen. We need more information, but it is important that we roll out those tests. You know, I will tell you that um, in terms of what's really happening in the community, I can absolutely positively tell you that there remains a overall shortage of PPE. 
And you know, when I say shortage, I think that uh, our local hospitals have done a very good job uh, obtaining PPE. We've worked very hard to have enough PPE, uh, but it is a constant struggle. It is not like we can say, well, gee, we've got you know plenty. We're, we're all set for the next six months. We're, we're fine. That is not the case. The case that literally oftentimes we're dealing with you know, a few days supply or a week supply at a time, trying to find uh, new sources anywhere we can, and frankly, trying to find sources at prices that are not, frankly, robbery. Uh, there are, you know, many people willing to offer to sell you PPE at extraordinarily, you know, high cost that no one can afford, uh, or of a quality that uh, you're not you're not uh, certain about. So, um, you know, that that should not be the situation, but it is the situation. And I would say that whether you're a hospital or whether you're a practice like ours, uh, it is a constant struggle. As as is, you know, there's been a constant struggle to get the testing supplies for the nasopharyngeal uh, you know, swabs. Um, there have been, you know, sometimes you're missing the uh, the vials, the transport media, sometimes you're missing the swabs. And uh, I am happy to say that we've recently started doing uh, testing in-house for the, uh, the nasal swabs. So that has improved our turnaround time before it was taking up to 10 days to get results from the national laboratories. Now we are doing our own testing um, starting uh, with the latter part of last week so that we can get test results uh, for the most part within 24 hours um, or less. And we hope to have the blood test, the ser serologic tests. Um, we have the tests on order. We hope to have those you know, literally any day, but it, you know, any day in this in the current world, you know, can mean a week or two or whatever. Um, you know, until you actually have it in your possession, you you don't know what's actually happening. And Doc, um, in addition to all these physical health issues we're talking about, this is also uh, a mental health issue in that people who are quarantined, if they're alone, if they're elderly and alone, uh, if they're young kids. Uh, worrying about how long is this going to last? Is it going to physically take their lives? There are so many mental health issues that that's something else you have to deal with. Isn't that correct? Uh, absolutely. I think this has put in uh, you know an extraordinary stress on everyone inside the healthcare system and outside the healthcare system. So you know we've had. Um, a number of our uh, employees, and um, uh, including physicians and other providers who've been out related to um, COVID-19 infection. But in addition, um, as you point out, um, you know there is a toll. I think there's a there's a mental health toll on everyone today of this uh, you know physical um, isolation. And I, and I think I think it really is you know it is more. Um, you know, the main emphasis on physical distancing, uh, even though we call it social distancing, but, you know, it, it isn't the same. Um, I attended a birthday party for um, a friend of mine and my wife's uh, the other day, uh, you know, via Zoom. Uh, it's not the same thing. 
uh, it's not the same thing as being there, you know, not not touching people uh, appropriately, um, hugging people, you know, being around people. Uh, it's very different, you know, seeing it on video and versus, you know, being there in person and, you know, sharing that common experience together. Um, you know, somehow it's uh, it's it's you know it's it's much more two dimensional. It's literally two dimensional. You know, seeing it on Zoom. Um, you know, as as good as that may be as a uh, as a tool. And um, so yes, I think it it has uh, and and fr frankly even harder, even harder for those who have uh, lost loved ones who you know are not. You know where where funerals are not being held in the same way, where people are not able to travel across country to attend a funeral. Uh, I mean, these are this is just uh, you know a horrible experience for for everyone. Uh, but you know, even people just going about their day to day lives, uh, the isolation I think is is palpable. Even the even the wearing of a mask, which is you know essential, uh, important. But, you know, you don't you don't see smiles, you don't see frowns, you don't. It's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like email. You know, the um, the emotion is hard to interpret. And, uh, you know, that's not a good thing for society. Uh, and it's not a good thing for for individuals. So, um, yes, there's been there. You know, there's been quite a toll. And, and that obviously is continuing.